Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. Welcome. <laughs> what does that mean? Poor Brandon. He's like, these beaches. I kind of feel like this should actually be left in the intro so A people blooper. hear. Welcome. You guys, Welcome. this is how we actually start. <laughs> I don't think we should. I think we should. I'm tickled. <laughs> We switch back and forth with who does the welcome back. And so I was saying, today, why don't you do it this time? Since I'm I so accustomed to you functioning that I was like, welcome. I, I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> oh my God. You start. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than... Okay. I'm going to be, be serious, serious now. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. This one is a part two to a conversation that we are obsessed with. And I feel like every time we talk to Annie, we're like, we need more of you. Can we keep you? Everything about the way that she unearths some things that are just like really deep layers of like challenge, frankly. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with her and her account and the way that she um, is exploring and challenging us to explore. Like, I just love her. Yeah. I feel like the part one, which we put out last week was a lot of like 30,000 foot, you know, of mm -hmm. the deeper conversation that I think we go into in this episode. Um, and I will say that my notebook is full. Like I have two full pages of notes that I took just while we were talking. So for sure, mm -hmm. if you're listening get yours out too. Cause I bet you there'll be things that you'll want to, you'll want to know more about, or you'll want to reach out to her about or ask us questions about. Um, and if any of this brings anything up or 
you know, stirs anything in you for sure. Feel free to reach out to Danae and I, to, I can't talk to Danae and I with a question that we can maybe even address on a future podcast episode. So <laughs> love it. without further ado, Annie Undone, part two. Okay. I have to say, Annie, you're our first person that we had on directly after for a part two. <laughs> We've had people on multiple times, but you're the first person we were like, nope, we have to have a part one and a part two back to back. (laughs) Yay. Thank you for being here again. Thank you for having me again. I'm really excited. Um, Okay. So I think we just want to like dive in and really utilize your time as much as possible and as like, you know, as best as possible. So I think if people listening, listen to part one, which if you haven't, please do. Um, They got kind of a 30,000 foot perspective of this conversation, right? Um, you know, open relationships, monogamous relationships, the kind of destructuring of, of the way that we view relationships. We really went there in a lot of different ways. And I think this conversation today and I wanted to have with you is more like, let's get deeper into the nitty gritty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard too, because like I've been I try to be as conversational as possible. And people are always like, wait, what is that word? What is that word? (laughs) So I think it's really important like to try and stop and not, you know, be too terminology heavy, even though like Mm -hmm. I'm such a language geek. I love it. I know. Me too. (laughs) Me too. Me too. (laughs) Danae, I know that you and I were talking a little bit about this concept of decentering romantic relationships and how we touched on it in our first part, but I guess Sine and I were talking between us, but also wondering if you could share some kind of ways that that has showed up personally for you in your life, right? Because, I mean, you share a lot about how um, your current partner, CJ, was somebody who you were already in a relationship with when you were coming out of your marriage, right? Yeah. I, both my partners actually are were we were all in a quad. We were calling it a play quad at the time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because we're different. There were varying levels of romantic feelings, relationships, and definitions around that um, mm-hmm. for the four of us. But um, yeah, so Heidi and I were also in a romantic relationship at the time that I left my marriage. Um, and I immediately became very worried because I knew that my emotional bandwidth was quickly crashing, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think anyone who's been through a divorce can kind of attest to the fact that it takes up just as much room, if not more, than a marriage, right? The emotional mm-hmm. energy is just very great. The greater the conflict, the greater the emotional energy. So um, I think that in terms of decentralizing romance, and I don't know if I said this in the last podcast, but one of the reasons I use the word decentralization is because it has to do with the amount of power that it has over you and over mm. your life. Um, and so we want to reseat ourselves in the seat of power, right? There's lots of correlations drawn between politics and love and relationship styles. And that's kind of my version of that. Um, but I think one of the reasons for that or one of the motivations for that for me is that I had really bought into this notion that building my life around my marriage was going to be sustainable, fulfilling, um, and was going to give me the things I needed. And clearly I saw that that was not true, right, in the wake of divorce. Um, But not only was it not true in monogamy, but it was also not true in polyamory. Mm -hmm. 
because mm-hmm. polyamory also exalted romantic relationships, just many of them. And in some ways, polyamory undermined my friendships more than my monogamy ever had. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that people always acknowledge that when they're hobby dating, right? So I think that's that's part of it too, was that I was like, I need this ability to see relationships on an equal plane, like even the relationship to myself, which I think is like one of the first things to go when we're like talking Mm -hmm. about forming, you know, I'm an all in kind of person. I'll go all in on a friendship. I'll go all in on a romantic relationship. I'll go all in on mothering. Right. And then who am I? Well, it doesn't matter. I'm defined by the roles that I have rather than Mm -hmm. the person I am to myself, which I think is, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a problem. I love this so much. I just finished having this conversation with a friend where we were talking about how often there's an experience that women don't even necessarily speak to, but I think certainly on like coming out of a marriage, um, I hear them start to like have a realization of something in what you're saying that I have been like a supporting character in everyone else's lives. I've Mm -hmm. been sort of like the supporting cast, but you know, I'm not the main character in my own life. And there's something about the reclaiming the idea of being like the main character in my own life and how much we are conditioned to think of that as selfish. And I think it's interesting. And I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on this, Annie, because I will own, I have very much like had a almost visceral reaction (laughs) around polyamory in the context of like men versus women, meaning I don't have the same reaction to men being polyamorous as women. And it's not even so much of a judgment, but there's something that can still feel like an objectification or like patriarchal ways of like, you know, using women as like a form of self-soothing or like the avoidance of self that I don't have as strong of a reaction to in women. Now I like I'm owning, like, I don't think I'm right for feeling this way, but it's, it's something that it brings up for me. And I think some of it is that there's maybe been a little bit more permission for men societally to like sort of play that like main character in their life's role and like something about women doing that and being in the exploration just feels a little bit more of like reclaiming to me but I don't know can I just clarify really quickly before you answer any Danae I'm confused I think maybe I don't know if you misspoke or maybe I'm just confused are you saying that you struggle more you originally said you struggle more with women being in polyamory is that what you meant or you meant you meant men is that what I said? Um, yeah. I said I struggle more with – I meant I struggle more with men. That's what I thought. Okay. You said women. So I just wanted to clarify because I knew what you meant, but I was like, wait, I just wanted to confirm. Okay. So you're struggling more with men. Got it. Sorry. Is that Annie, what you ahead. heard, Annie? Did you hear me say women? I, I was a little confused on the context of the clarification's great. And I think I think what you're referring to, so correct me if I'm wrong, is like this notion of like men in multiple relationships having like a harem of women, essentially. Yes. Is that the okay. She so goes, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's what I mean. That. Yes. 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 I mean, I think there's a few reasons why we have this reaction. I think one, there are some very um strong narratives socially and in the media, right? The one mm-hmm. is the triad, two women, one man, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we see most often. And then the other thing we see is polygamous marriages, right? So we think that polyamory is somehow victimizing women. And I think 
that's one, that's like a feminine, that might be a feminist view on that, right? Um, the experience that I had was actually very different um, because societally, I think that people are actually much harder on women than they are on men. Um, when people in my ex-husband's family, for example, found out that I, we were practicing polyamory, he was seen as the victim and I was seen as the whore. Mm-hmm. And that was a very, I mean, it went this far, right? The week before his parents found out, they were like, you are such a good mom. We are so proud of you. Like, and the way that you're raising your daughter and all of this stuff to the next week, them being like, we have a lot of concerns, right? And so I was like, nothing new has happened. You just have new information. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I think that we get caught in this like, oh my God, we can't win no matter what we're doing yeah. um, sort of mentality. And I, and I think too, I guess it's important to note that like a lot of men who are engaging in more than one relationship are having to do a lot of deconstruction of their maleness, of how that shows up in the world, mm-hmm. of how they communicate with women, right? They're also having to face... I am not this person's only partner. And that is a very triggering thing. And you would think that it would be more triggering in the mail to me. I actually got this, this direct question from somebody um, asking if they thought that, if I thought that men were more aggressive with each other. And I was like, that actually hasn't been my experience because at a Mm. time when I had a husband and a girlfriend, they were screaming at each other about, who had more time with me and who was more important and, you know, who predated who and all this other nonsense. Um, So I think it's, I mean, it's highly individualized in a lot of ways. Um, And I think that it comes down to how you're practicing and who you're practicing with. Mm. Yeah. I I think what you just said is like a really interesting and important point because I do think that when I have seen, um, you know, men and women in polyamorous dynamics and like there's a primary partnership when it becomes interesting is often the work that comes up for a man in all of his societal conditioning around quote, sharing his woman with another Mm -hmm. man. And all of a sudden it becomes a very different dynamic than when I've been, you know, I'm able to focus more in my relationship and I'm just able to be more present with you when I have other women that I'm sleeping with. But then all of a sudden when the woman's doing that, it's a very different energetic in what it brings up for a man. And you really do see that play out, right? Like a lot of times when I see couples and peer support, it'll be like, well, everything was fine until I got a partner. Everything was fine until he started also dating, right? So everybody... And this is something I talk about, like your motivation to be non-monogamous has to hold up whether or not you have a partner, right? If you're coupled and you're opening, like you're going to have to do that messy work. Sometimes you're going to have to be alone. And so if your motivation doesn't hold up when you're not having fun, it may not be strong enough. And I mm-hmm. I also like encourage people to be honest with themselves about this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like. There are lots of people who are curious, but are like, I don't want my relationship to change. If you don't want your relationship to change, don't open it. There's no shame in that. That's okay. That's an okay thing to want, you know? Um, and I think that our our curiosity and our willingness to engage in non-monogamy in like the light of truth, which is my relationship could end and putting a lot on the line, it will absolutely change my dynamic, has to outweigh our desire for things to stay the same. Mm. 
I love what you're saying because, you know, I, I remember in part one of our conversation, I mentioned how, you know, maybe it's the sick therapy nerd in me, but how I get like really excited by anger and activation, right? As like a pathway to deeper understanding. And I think that, I, mean, I guess there's like two thoughts that are coming up in my mind, right? One is that when I was non-partnered, unpartnered, um, I had different activation points for sure, but I didn't have the same activation that I'm working through in a partnership, right? So like me being in the partnership, at least the one that I'm currently in, which is somebody who is super open to also self-exploration, digging in, let's look at our shadow, what's coming up, all these things. I feel like I have learned about myself and have grown actually more um, than when I wasn't partnered. It may be just in different ways. Maybe it's not a less than or more than. Um, and so I guess there's, I, I think there's a question in there, which is something about um, what you have experienced, especially in when you do peer support, you know, people um, learning about themselves or doing this within the container of a relationship versus not, right? And I guess the second kind of branch or whatever that, that came from when you guys were talking was this idea of, um, nope, it's gone. I lost it. There was a second branch, but I'll come back to it. <laughs> the branch well, has this broken. First one. <laughs> This first one is actually really important, right? Because my recommendation to people who are solo poly or dating and not um, coupled mm -hmm. is not to try and start multiple relationships at the same time, mm -hmm. right? To, to try and be in one healthy relationship and see what that feels like. That's always my recommendation to people, whether they're coupled actually as well. Like if you're coupled, like, do you know what one healthy relationship is and is this it? Yes. Right? Um, before you open. But this creates a unique problem in non-monogamy because if you're non-monogamous and you go out and you're seeking that one, like, first I'm going to try at one good relationship. Well, now you're in a dyad and now you have mm. to open that dyad mm. and into two, right? So essentially we're coupling ourselves and then having to open, which is creating the problem that the non-monogamous community feels like we're, we're always couple-centrically talking about opening relationships, right? Mm -hmm. So this is something that's actually been very much on my mind because relationships will always trigger us. And, you know, everybody talks about you know, it's not about finding a relationship that never triggers you. It's about finding someone who will work through your triggers with you. And I think that that's extremely important. Um, and I think that it depends on the direction in which you want to grow and what season you're in in your yeah. life. Like, if you're going to be coupled, you're going to be growing. That's just, you know, and then I guess if you're uncoupled, the growth is up to you. And how do you self-direct your growth and, mm -hmm. and which direction do you want to head in? I think they both come with unique challenges. Like, how are you with alone time? Like when we talk about, you know, am I diving into connection in unhealthy ways as a way to avoid my feelings, right? I think most people don't want to admit that they're doing that, but that's, you know, we all do it. It's fine. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's knowing how you're doing it and why, and are you willing to look beneath the surface. Um, at the same time, being unpartnered, you have a different set of quandaries to face, which is how do I spend my alone time? Who am I? Um, what values do I bring with me into the world? And how do I cultivate friendships? So ideally, I would say that if we are decentralizing romance in the ways that I idealize, I'm doing both simultaneously. I am not mm. just a coupled person, but I'm also an individual. I love that. Okay, wait. 
I know I can see Danae's wheels turning, but I found my second branch. And so I want to say it before I lose it again. <laughs> um, the other kind of point I was thinking is this concept where you were saying about when people are worried about what they currently have changing, then they shouldn't mm. open the relationship, right? And I And I agree. And there is also a part of me that feels like so much of the way that we exist in our relationships, and I would say this crosses all categories of relationships, is in an attempt to protect ourselves from the inevitable existential fears and realities mm. of being human, which is endings change death, right? Endings death kind of mm. being the same thing. And so yeah. even if you are somebody who's going, I don't want to open my relationship that's totally fair. I'm not saying this is for everybody. Clearly, nothing is for everybody. But I think if your number one reason for not wanting to open your relationship is simply and strictly because you don't want the dyad to change or to end or to restructure, I think there's exploration in that. Again, I'm not saying that the exploration should lead you into, I want to open my relationship. But I think yeah. that there's something worthy of looking into in that, right? Because even in the conversations that like John and I have had around this, um, you know, this concept of like monogamish or open versus polyamory and some, you know, I've had, especially women in particular have said to me, yeah, but isn't there a risk that he will get romantically or fall in love with somebody else if he's in more of a romantic emotional relationship versus just sexual? And I'm like, well, yeah, but he isn't that always the risk? He's his own person. He's out in the world. Like, unless I've got him literally in a bunker and chained to the wall, he's going to be en engaging with other women. And there's always that potential. Same with me, right? We cannot protect ourselves from that. As much as we want to believe that our partners don't ever think about or fantasize about anybody else, which is bullshit, everybody listening, as much as we want to believe that our partners will, you know, are there undying fidelity means da, 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 about me, right? None of these things are actually correct. And I think that that in and of itself is something we should really be exploring deeper. Yeah. it's This is like a very hotly debated topic between my partner, Heidi, and I. Um, <laughs> we need and Heidi I, on for this. I know. Right? <laughs> I'm tapping her in. Come on, Heidi. <laughs> she has really been like, because my kind of stance is like, any reason that you don't want to open for is a good reason. And this is part of my thinking, right? Is that I see I, I've opened relationships and I've closed relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that in either case, you have to assume that the opening or the closing is a permanently fixed star, right? Like mm -hmm. you can't unring a bell. You can't say I'm closing the relationship. No, like, no, I want to open it, right? Like you can't say I'm opening the relationship. No, I want to close it. I mean, Essentially, you can do those things, but as you make those changes, the question you should ask yourself is, am I comfortable with making this a permanent change? Mm -hmm. And so if there is something about that, that is just saying, you know what? I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not comfortable with this. To me, that's a good enough reason to say, no, not right now. Yep. Right. And I think that there's always an examination to be done around that. Right. Like for me, and this was one of the things like I was like, sometimes I just think I don't want to take on the emotional load of this. I can't do this emotional work. I don't want to feel jealous. I don't want to be triggered in these ways. My nervous system cannot handle it right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And I remember Heidi asking me the question of is avoiding jealousy a good enough reason to do that? Well, I think it's a worthy question, but I don't think that I've avoided any jealousy by way of closing my relationship, right? Mm. I actually have still experienced jealousy and it comes out in the weirdest ways and I'm always surprised by it. Um, 
But I think that it's not an avoidance of an entire category of emotion. It's in honor of what can I handle and how am I being honest with myself? Mm -hmm. And in doing so, am I taking this change very seriously by Mm -hmm. saying that this will be the resting place of this relationship until further notice? Now, that doesn't shut down conversation, right? If CJ came to me and said, tomorrow, um, I think I want to be non-monogamous. I mean, it would be a big discussion. I would have a lot of questions. Um, And, you know, we do have some ongoing conversations about what would that look like or philosophically, like, where are we at? Um, but unless there is a very explicit change that we would both take as as quite a permanent change, there is no change, right? Mm. So I think it's important how you approach mm. those things because I think a lot of people in non-monogamy, me being one of them, when I opened my marriage, um, I think he saw it as a we can just like close anytime or go to therapy or whatever. Right. And like, no, I didn't see it that way. I saw it as a change that we were making to the structure of our relationship. And there was no going back after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause you know, you said, <laughs> um, I forget how you said that. And you were like, I mean, you can make these changes <laughs> or un- like rattle the bell once you've rung it. But I think, And, you know, I don't, I don't know what it always comes back to me. What always comes back to me is I've been so struck working with couples, the extent to which um, our relationships have really been based on what I like to call an ownership template. Mm -hmm. And when someone is my person, they are mine. Mm -hmm. They belong to me. Like I I have a, a fair amount of authority over like how they are living their lives and what they are doing and the choices that they make. And in the long term one i think that leads to a real lack of relational satisfaction we get sort of like in these yeah. parentified roommate dynamics but also i think there's a lot of ways to the point you were making about what heidi was speaking to is i think it really um doesn't challenge us to continue to like do some of the deeper inquiry around okay like when I'm jealous, what's that about? Mm -hmm. What's the story I'm telling myself about that, right? Like, is it true? What else could be true? Where did I learn this? Where did I learn that I wasn't enough? If like, I was, I wasn't the only person that this person wants to like connect with whatever it is. Right. Um, And so I believe there's some way that I still, and this is, you know, we were talking about, I can't remember the name of her book now. I should have looked it up. The woman who talks about um, polyamory and, Jessica Ferns, the name of that one. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I got you. There's some ways. Thank you. This is what's really amazing about working with Vanessa. Is she can just like read my mind. I don't have to like, think. <laughs> she just jumps in there. And um, but in Jessica Ferns' book, when I was reading, like, there were so many elements that really felt like still making my partner responsible for a lot of my reparenting work. And that's often what gives me a lot of pause is that it still feels like outsourcing some of that to me. Yeah. And I think this is where we get into like those mononormative like mindsets and like Mm. specifically with jealousy, like just because we were touching on that a little bit, um, like for me, I, I was recently dealing with this because I was having like a, I was having a jealous moment and I just, I called it out with CJ. I was like, 
I don't know what's going on with me. I'm struggling with a lot of jealousy. And he was like, yeah, I noticed like we don't talk about other women anymore. Like, mm-hmm. why is that going on? And I was like, I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I think we need to have a really honest conversation over this, you know, so that I can really give voice to like how I'm feeling. And what I had to say was really triggering for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, I was like, I need a therapy session because I don't know what's going on with me right now. Like I can't get out of this loop and it's making me crazy. Mm -hmm. And my therapist was like, is it jealousy or is it vulnerability? Mm -hmm. And so she had me change the language from I'm feeling jealous to I'm feeling vulnerable. And it was a complete game changer. And I was like, it's true. I'm not jealous of this person. I'm not jealous of this concept. Mm. I feel vulnerable that this is my partner and this is something I love so much that I could lose. Right. Because Mm. I also knew, I knew enough from my time in non-monogamy and the work that I had done around jealousy that you can't be possessive. You can't hold the, that kind of ownership stance. You can't shut down when someone says, Hey, I've got this thing to talk to you about. Like you can't turn away. Right. Like I knew I, and I was like, I can't do, I can't do any of these things. And I can't be jealous because that will also destroy the thing I love. Mm -hmm. So I think that we have to really, and I think that that's work that monogamous people can do for themselves too. Right. Like it's not, this is work that I do with my daughter, right? When she says, oh, this girl at school did this and took my friend, you know? And I'm like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, that's jealousy. You know, this is a very tough emotion when you feel, and I think it's also very important to define what is jealousy and what is envy, mm-hmm. right? Because we really think that these are synonymous terms and they're not. Mm-hmm. Jealousy is the fear that a third party outside of your dyad is going to take something away from you, right? And envy is wanting what someone else has. So I think it's important to identify the difference so that you can meet the need that you actually have. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I think to me, what came up that I felt so struck by, and, you know, obviously not asking you to like talk too much about your relationship personally, but I would imagine some of the triggering for CJ had something to do with the realm of ways that we have a tendency to villainize another person when we feel some of these feelings come to the surface or actually, you know what, it's, (laughs) some of it has to do with my age. Some of it just has to do with insecurity around my age. Um, you know, I'm in my thirties. He's in his twenties. Um, he is a PhD student. He's very, very smart. He's surrounded by these super intelligent, I'm sure gorgeous women in my imagination who are (laughs) doing things that he is directly interested in. Right. And there's only so much I can possess in the learning curve of material science. It's not my area of expertise, right? I will listen to everything he has to say Mm. about enriching gallium arsenide, or I might be saying that wrong. Um, But, you know, I listen to all the things and I, and I, I feel better and smarter and more alive and enriched because of all of the things that he's doing. But I don't know the elemental components of that. Right. There are so much I can't know about those things. And there are some very clear ceilings to my relationship with him in terms of my age and childbearing and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so sometimes it's hard for me to, to, to feel my worth in terms of, um, why would this person love me so much as to say, I don't need some of these other things, right? Or this is enough. And how do I believe that through my own vulnerabilities, knowing what I know about the nature of marriage? What makes this mm. different? Well, that's triggering to me too, Annie, because I'm <laughs> sitting here in front of you. I'm like, but to me, that's honestly like, that does become the work of staying with ourselves mm -hmm. and yeah. really being in the remembrance of our particular brand of magic, right? Like right. I am like this woman who's so brilliant and the way that she talks about things blows my mind. But yes, it may not be the vernacular structure of whatever right. component right. of whatever. And mm -hmm. that's not meant to be your magic. Do you right. know what I mean? And so like, it's important for me to be able to say it's, his work relationships and that kind of stimulation is important and he can like those people, love those people, have a really good working relationship, friendship, even very close emotional friendships with those people. And I still possess a value as well, but it's hard because they're also can I ask you, to me. Because I feel like this is kind of going back to what I was saying before, but I imagine some of the fear that people have is like, yes, he can have all those things and yet I can still possess a value. You know, I have a value in this relationship. And if he were to have sexual fantasies about some of these women, do you still stand in your, and I still have value in this relationship? Because I think for yeah. women, especially, maybe not, I shouldn't say that because I feel like maybe men feel similarly. It's once it crosses over into that line that suddenly there becomes a faltering of my sense of self, like how, how I value myself in this, in this relationship. Does that yeah. Make sense? I mean, I think that for me, the, the, the line is kind of fuzzy. I mean, sure. I don't I mean, mind as it is he has for all of us. I, I don't mind if he has fantasies about people. I don't necessarily need to hear about them. But if he did share them with me, like he shared something recently with me and I was like, you know what? That makes me really trust him because he shared mm -hmm. that with me. Like mm -hmm. he didn't have to. He could have kept that in his head. Um, but it's an honor to, to for him to have that kind of trust in me. Right. Mm -hmm. Like those are some of the elements of polyamory that I carry forward with me. Mm -hmm. Um and so I think it's okay to have a fantasy life, right? I think it's okay to have, um, you know, thoughts of other people, to acknowledge that other people are beautiful, both in mind, body, and spirit, right? Um, the point is, are you loyal to the commitments that we've made to one another? And are we clear about what they are? Mm. Well, so I think this is an interesting, I don't know if segue, but like way to like explore something you posted about today that I loved, which was this idea of a relationship escalator. And I'd love for you to talk some more about that. But like what was coming up as you were just speaking is I have this, you know, um, what's the, <laughs> I can't find the word. Vanessa, what's the word I'm looking for? Theory. That's also, you got to give me more than that. <laughs> Usually I just look at you. Um, I have this theory that like what we are evolving into relationally is this idea that we join in partnership when it's justified for as long as it's justified. Mm, and that I becomes that. like what we hold as like more of a societal norm around mm -hmm. relationships. And we really do like our ego work around what that brings up for us, but that's my work. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, you know, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on that, but also this idea that like, like, let's say that CJ, I don't even say God forbid, because like, again, like I wouldn't necessarily be, I would be sad for you because it would bring up pain, sadness, pain, mm -hmm. but also that like, 
I know the complexity of Annie and that like maybe this was the trajectory this relationship was meant to take, meant to take, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess some of that is like, how do we be in the exploration around? And if one of those people were someone that something happened and shifted, does it make my love less relevant? Does it make Mm -hmm. like our thing any less beautiful? Do you know what I'm saying? So I have a couple of things to say about that. The first one I want to talk about is um, for as long as they're justified, right? I think that we don't always talk about the end at the beginning and we absolutely should. Um, Mm. One of the questions that CJ and I talked about pretty early on within the first eight months of our relationship was what does this relationship look like if we ever stop having sex? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, What if we share a home and that happens? You know, what if we're married and that happens? Like, what does that look like for us? So I really encourage people to have conversations like that. Right. My relationship with Heidi is essentially a conversation like that. Right. Um, Heidi and I used to have sex. We used to have a romantic relationship. And now we don't because for us preserving the relationship was extremely important. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's someone I'm partnered to. I have deep commitments to. um, But it's it's not a sexual relationship. Um, and so, you know, to me, that's polyamory, right? Like I- I'm committed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, all definitions aside, I think that those are decisions that people have to make about the types of relationships that they want to have. Second to that um, is that I don't believe in person-specific polyamory. Um, and this is another really hotly debated one, but this is, I'll, I'll explain what I mean and then I'll explain why I don't believe in it. And I actually... Re- CJ and I recently had a conversation about this because, you know, one of the reasons that we closed at the time that we did is we are like, we just really just like, we need to figure this out for ourselves. And like, if there's ever an opportunity to practice this in the future, it would have to be somebody who really, really aligned with what we were doing. Right. Um, What I think becomes very problematic is that couples have these hypothetical um, conversations around opening up. And then one of them meets somebody and they're like, I think this person can really be a good fit. Well, okay, but now we'll never know, right? Because what you've now done is essentially opened your emotional relationship or your physical relationship or whatever without the consent of your partner. Let's Mm. say that even in theory, you come to your partner and you're like, I want to open the relationship because I think I've met this person. You've automatically undermined the trust of your partner. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think and, and this is not a judgment call because this happens all the time. Right. I see couples all the time who are like we open because one cheated. We open because of this. Right. I'm not saying it's insurmountable and I'm not saying that people don't do it and I'm not rendering judgment on those who do. What I'm saying is if I've caught you before you've opened, maybe mm-hmm. don't. Right. Because. Mm-hmm. If you're starting off, if the intention is not, we're going to open up and how do we do this in a way that feels good and authentic to both of us in a Mm -hmm. way that we're both consenting to, right? Then you're already creating much more work for yourself Mm -hmm. than you need to. And so for Mm -hmm. me, I think it would be a very hard sell. And my litmus test for that is I will never ask somebody to do something I wouldn't want to do myself. And I would never want to blindside my partner like that. Mm-hmm. That's disloyal. Full stop. Mm. Yeah. I'm just like in my head. I'm thinking about a, a few, a few situations, you know, with the clients and and friends that 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 has been the case. And in the most, um, again, non judgmental and and gentle way, I've attempted to say, and I and I will say that 
two or three examples I'm thinking of. It was the, in a heterosexual dynamic, it was the man that cheated and then the woman that said, okay, I'll go along with this idea of being open in the most gentle way, trying to question or, or get them to question the motivation behind them opening, right? Um, because and is it tough. just your fear of the loss of the person? Is it just mm -hmm. the fear of being alone? Is it just the fear of, right? And we could go through all of the, all of the ways. And listen, I've seen it happen and people have them practice it. And then the woman has actually enjoyed components to it and found parts of herself through it and all of those things. You know, it's not always that I've seen it happen and it blows up in the woman's face, but I still think it's worthy of doing that inner inquiry around what is the fear that's driving the action here, you know, in this But also example. from like a very like pragmatic therapeutic standpoint, like now you've not only got to do the work to open your relationship, but you have to rebuild trust. And At you're already time. trying to deconstruct all of your mononormative thinking. So you're doing triple the load when what you should have done was paused, mm -hmm. deconstructed first, mm -hmm. then opened, right? Without any trust issues to add to mm -hmm. it. And people are going to do this all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. I just really want people to be aware of the workloads that they're mm. bringing emotionally because we fulfill so many roles in our lives that without having an idea about the emotional workload we have to do, we can't really onboard to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I literally like, and this is the hidden oh, in me. I'm like, it sounds exhausting. <laughs> like, it is. But you it know, is. I would say and even monogamous relationships are fucking exhausting. Like, I, well, no, right? I'm saying, like, like all, all of it's fucking exhausting, right? <laughs> this is why people stay alone because this is exhausting. I would rather go write another book. Like, I, I mean, cannot. it's true. It's true. It's very exhausting. And that's why I, I encourage people in dyads who are not yet open to start with deconstruction and not start with opening, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a choice to do this in chapters, mm -hmm. take the option, right? As a solo person, as a solo poly person, you can do a lot of that work on your own too. Yeah. This isn't just for couples. Anyone who's interested in mm -hmm. having an open relationship and or having a monogamous relationship that doesn't subscribe to the social narrative that decentralizes right. romance, right? You, you want to start with deconstruction, right? Because if you are letting go of a monogamous mindset, if you're intentionally not trying to be codependent and you're trying to be interdependent, like if you're working through a lot of these concepts, then when you get to the stage that you're opening, all you have to focus on is the opening. Right. Yeah. And let's Which be clear, is, that work that you're talking about is still really fucking hard. <laughs> like I feel yeah. like as somebody who has been actively in the fire of the deconstruction mm -hmm. and the attempting to, you know, uh, again, deconstruct the codependency um, and has been doing it within the the kind of structure of a monogamous relationship. Um, yeah. That that's been that's been hard. It's been years of very hard work. And so had I added the extra component of the open relationship at the time when I was in the midst of all of the deconstruction. And are you ever really done with the deconstruction? No. no. It's, I don't, no. I don't think that you all of a sudden get to a point where you're like, <laughs> no. well, now my mononormativity is deconstructed. And so now, you know, but if I had added that in at that, oh my God, I can't even imagine. I, I even somebody like me who has always been very open and very clear in my belief in open relationships. I mean, 
literally since I was like 16, I remember having these conversations with friends. Um, I still don't know if I would have had the emotional strength and bandwidth to handle both simultaneously, you know? Yeah. Mm. And I think that people aren't always realistic about that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And look, you want to do chaos. Chaos is fine. There's times in our lives where chaos is great, right? (laughs) But you have to really be aware, right, of what you're what you're ultimately probably going to yield as a result, right? Like, and that's fine. Sometimes we just need to burn it all down. I'm not like being like, listen, I'm really like woke, and you should be too, and this is like the best (laughs) way to do it. Like, I'm not saying that at all, right? Because I only know these things because I did chaos, I did Mm. deconstruction and opening, right? I burned it all down. I did those things, right? And I think that there's a value to that wisdom, right? Like, Mm. I think there's a value to regret. I think that hurt Mm. is a, is a really great thing to experience sometimes. Um, but now where I'm at, I'm like, okay, I see some clear experiential and probably if we had the research statistical things that we could really say, maybe don't. And some people Mm. will take that. And some people just want to learn through experience. And I think both are fine. You know, I just think you have to be honest about where you're at. And that's the most important part. So will you say more about mononormativity? Like, can we talk about a little bit more of what that means, what that, like the deconstruction of that is? Because there's a way that even as you're talking about some of your different relationship structures, I know for me, some of the deepest growth work that I've done relationally has been with my kid's dad outside of the container of us Mm -hmm. being a couple Mm -hmm. because there's so much like challenging like what is true about what this has to be or how I should feel that we're like well we just don't want that to be our truth that's just not how we want to interact and have our child experience us um and I think there's some of that in there with what you're Mm -hmm. saying about modern yeah so I have like a, a quick list of some things that we think are healthy and mononormative relationships, but aren't. And these, mm-hmm. this is a list. So it doesn't have that. Every category has to be it's not checked, exhaustive. Right? It's, it's, it's not, it's, it's kind of seven items. And then like, whatever comes up for you guys, we can touch on. Right. The first mm-hmm. is longevity as a badge of honor. I think we're yep, all we talk about this all the time. <laughs> yeah. um, the second, I think people are more guilty of in groups of married people, especially, but normalizing bad or low key abusive behavior, lying Oof. to a spouse, hiding things or normalizing just because they're happening to other people or talking shit about your spouse constantly to the other yeah, saying people. how much you hate Let's them. add that yeah. in there because that's something Danae <laughs> and I talk about all the time. Yes, absolutely. Um, the third is jealousy and possession as a sign of loyalty or love, which mm-hmm. we kind of talked about a little. Mm-hmm. Um, centering your romantic relationships and building your world around it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lack of autonomy, either doing the schedule for your spouse or having your spouse do the schedule for you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, decision making, being able to do things, eating what you want, right? Oh. Um, oh. Just there's a big <laughs> long like, list. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So so when we think about autonomy, the 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 thing I like to to kind of say in terms of monogamous relationships, especially for people who've been together over 10 years, when's the last time you made a decision for yourself? You have given away so much of your autonomy in little tiny pieces until you can't remember the last time you made a decision for yourself. And so you have to be really careful about that. Mm. Um Oof. 
Let's see. Mm-hmm. Number six is my biggest stumbling block, which is time entitlements. Um, my partner's time that is free is automatically my time. Yes. I think that's a big one. And then um, the final one is going for codependency instead of secure attachment. Mm-hmm. Girl. <laughs> I, I, I said a whole word. I know. I, I, go ahead. This, no, you go ahead, baby. No, I just was laughing because I was just thinking about how I I made plans. It's a very quick story. I made plans to go out Thursday night with a friend of mine, a male friend of mine, platonic friend, to go see a concert. And even in all the work that we're doing, and this is my attempt to kind of normalize the struggles of deconstructing this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't ask permission of my partner before I made that choice. You know, we have a shared calendar that we both input and upkeep, by the way. but there's something in the calendar, right? Like I know that neither one of us have plans. And so that is important because we have a kid who somebody would need to watch, right? And so I texted him and I, I'm going to be very honest. It took me like three tries of rewriting the text message because I was trying to figure out a way to make it sound like I wasn't like, hey, I'm doing this thing. Stay home with the kid. Mm-hmm. And then I watched myself and I was going, huh, why is it that I'm struggling with our team? That's not I was asking him permission because I don't need to in my relationship. I know that. But it was definitely a struggle for me to articulate it in a way that didn't come across as me going, you're staying home with a kid because I'm doing this thing, which like, that's really what it was, you know, but I, I don't know. Anyway, I, it just reminded me when you were saying time entitlement, I was like, but there, when there's a kid in there, that's also a big component to it, right? Is time entitlement meaning yeah. like, I want to go do my thing and be autonomous. And so somebody has got to stay home with the kid, you know? Right. I mean, divorce really simplifies that, I gotta say. Oh, trust not me. I've heard this from so many people. It's not clients. a recommendation. <laughs> I, I, I don't recommend it. Um, yep. but for me, I, I would say that's less of an issue. And yeah. more of the issue is if my boyfriend has free time, why mm-hmm. isn't he spending it with me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, well, I- I really want to talk about that. But before we go there, I just, I think what comes up for me, and I do have a relationship with my kid's dad, where it Mm -hmm. is like, I think there is something in, how do I speak to this person as if I weren't entitled to anything from them? Period. Mm -hmm. Like my kid's dad and I don't divide time where like you have munchies, like it's, hey, what do you have going on this weekend? Would you be cool staying home so I can do this thing? Yeah. I encourage couples to do that regardless. Like, yeah. why is it that like, we can't have that conversation with one, like you're not entitled to just yeah. stay home with the kid. Like we got to work it out. Right. Right. So right. What if I said like, would you be cool with that? As I would anybody else I were asking for support, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's where I landed, you know, but it definitely, I, I guess my point in even saying it is noticing how I was like thinking about and like, am I asking, I'm not asking permission, but how do I say this? So it doesn't feel like I'm asking permission and just watching myself kind of rattle through that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that for me in terms of like parenting, um, and time, I was the default parent for Mm -hmm. seven plus years. Mm -hmm. Um, I was the get up in the middle of the night parent. I was Mm -hmm. the, I'm at home because you're doing something and who even knows what you're doing parent, you know? Um, and so, I've had a very different experience in terms of divorce and custody. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we have set days and, and there's a freedom in that too, right? Like, you know what sure. your days are. Your child knows what the days are. Um, and I think, you know, that has its own kind of freedom. But in terms of being entitled to somebody's time, I think it's a huge trigger because 
you know, we want to, we gravitate towards the people we love and they want to spend time with us. Um, and we're told, you know, by our, our social upbringings that if somebody loves you and, and if I had, and the, the funniest part is I thought as I moved into relationship anarchy with a queer platonic partner and a boyfriend that, oh, I'll be able to talk to monogamous people about my relationship again and immediately got the icks because mm. as I would go in and be like, yeah, so like CJ's doing this and somebody would say to me, well, he should do this with his time mm -hmm. based on mm -hmm. the status of your relationship. I find it still such a ridiculous notion. and. Sometimes I'm triggered around that, right? Mm -hmm. But I still find it ridiculous, right? Like he just informs me, I'm going on a trip with my family for a week. I'll see you this day. If you can pick me up from the airport, that'd be great, right? <laughs> like, I'm like, okay, great. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I think it takes some time to not see those things as a loss, right? Mm -hmm. um, or to be like, well, why am I not invited? Well, you're not invited because you're not invited. That's why you're not invited. <laughs> You're not entitled to much time. There's you all know? these like things happening right now in this conversation, social media. I keep seeing people talking about this, like if he loved you, he would. Have you guys watched yes. all these that are yes. getting shared around? Like everybody's hot take on this concept of like, if he loved you, he would. And I feel like it's similar to what you're talking about. It's like deconstructing like you, this concept of if somebody loved us, they would X, Y, and Z. That's the entitlement it, piece, right? It's more like if you loved him, you would make a request and see if he's emotionally available and then have a conversation about how you compromise and maybe try to deconstruct what's under that request as a need. <laughs> <laughs> Because we are raised to believe that love is about what we get and not mm, what we, we give. give. And, or, and who we are. You know, yeah. it's it, it extends beyond like one of the things that I struggle with. And maybe this I think this for me ch checks the box of heteronormativity. Right. Um, if my partner doesn't desire me sexually, what value do I bring to this relationship? Right. Mm. Um I think that that's a very tough trigger for me because sometimes if I don't feel desirable, am I still worthy? Right. Mm. Um, and so I think that, you know, we're always standing with our demons in a way and, and facing them. I think it's easier to hide from those in monogamy because we have such strong cultural narratives, right? Like it'd be easy for me to turn that around and be like, you're not having sex with me. So you must be cheating on me. Right. And that's not the case at all. Maybe he's just tired. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think as you say that, what I'm so struck by is someone who's spent a few years now consciously making the choice to be alone is like, when I feel those things, I really have to source that from within, which mm -hmm. I didn't have to do for 12 years when mm -hmm. someone else was sort of like validating that for me. And I think a lot of times, and Vanessa and I were having this conversation the other day about that we are such a society I find that like really villainizes the avoidant tendencies because we're just so codependent and mm -hmm. someone who feels flooded by the needs of others. Like mm -hmm. we can't even conceptualize that, but someone was saying, you know, if you grew up with a parent that very much felt entitled to you and it was about like resentment when you didn't anticipate what they wanted from you or control of your time and your um, like that martyrdom and manipulation and I'm supposed to read between the lines of what you mean. Like a lot of times relational dynamics feel exhausting and yes. overwhelming and you want to avoid them. And I think people sort of like I just want to love you. Like, why can't you just accept love? And it's like, because a lot of times love can feel like on a nervous system level, overwhelming and threatening. Way that I don't think 
yeah, we like, we make space for the experience, like the felt experience mm-hmm. of that for people, you know, Amen. your love yeah. suffocates me. Yes. It's funny. I have a really unique experience with this because I am anxious in one of my relationships and avoidant in the other. Oh, um, <laughs> so this is really an interesting subject for me um, because I've had to kind of get comfortable on both ends of that as I, as we are all working towards secure attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm really starting to get in the ballpark with myself, which obviously helps in both relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we do, we do villainize avoidance, but we also skip this fact, which is that both avoidantly attached people and preoccupied attached people, we're all anxious. Okay. Yep. We're all having a bad time. <laughs> And I think that people really forget that, right? Because Mm. I think, you know, I, there was something CJ said once that was not, of course, I internalized it immediately and became furious, but it actually wasn't about me. It was about somebody else. But he said, because I'm avoidant and I hold the power. And I was like, I was like, you just named the fear puppy that everyone knows is coming to pee on their carpet, right? Like, (laughs) It was just so bad. Like I was like, this is so bad. Um, and I, and I think that that's very much the thing that anxious, uh, preoccupied, attached people feel, right? Mm-hmm. I have no power, right? Yes, you um, do. I know. But, See, but Danae and I, we, that's <laughs> my reaction too, because as somebody who shows up as more of the avoidant in most of my relate, not always, but I, that's exactly it. It's like, I get almost pissed off when somebody has the audacity on the other side to tell me that I'm the one with the power, because it's like, you have your own fucking power. You're just, this is how I see it. This is me and my annoyance. You're just choosing to give it to me. You're just choosing to put it on me and tell me it's my problem and my fault and my responsibility that you're feeling unloved, that you're feeling undesired, that you're feeling whatever the un is here. And I'm like, super so I came up with like, because, you know, because Anxious attachment is so triggering. Mm. And because it's so much a part of the non-monogamous experience, I came up with what I call the one hour rule is that you're not allowed to contact the avoidant person for at least an hour. The worst hour of your damn life, (laughs) right? Like it's a terrible, awful hour. And so this is what I give to people in peer supports all the time is I tell them you have to initiate the one hour rule, which is I'm not going to contact this person for one hour. And I know it's going to be terrible. Like it's going to be awful. Then what happens is you get done the hour and you're like, I did it. And then you stack them. You do another hour and you identify what your window of tolerance is, right? Getting hot. Once you... (laughs) Once you get to your window of tolerance, then you check in, right? Mm. And it can't be less than an hour. It cannot. Mm. Ideally, you want to try to go five or eight hours, right? Because to me- spicy to me. (laughs) I mean, it it sometimes feels like a lot, right? But you're going to distract yourself. You're going to engage in your hobbies. You're going to phone a friend. You're going to watch a movie. You're going to take care of yourself, right? You might get a lot done, you know? So- when you reach your window of tolerance, then you reach out and say, Hey, I just wanted to check in about like where you're at. And, you know, and I think it gets easier with practice. Again, this mm-hmm. is why we call non-monogamy, polyamory and relationship anarchy a practice. We're not mm-hmm. perfecting it. We're practicing it. Right. And, and I really learned as an anxiously attached person 
that I will live. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I know, and so I know as an avoidant in my other relationship that so will that person, that person will also live. Right. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to avoid, I'm going to be very clear about the time I'm taking. I'm, you know, I'm not going to ask them to do anything I wouldn't do. And I'm going to ask for what I need. I think this is the one thing that avoidance tend to skip is like, I need, you know, I'm going to now take three hours to myself and I don't want to discuss this. Right. Yes. Because because you feel bad. Anxi- we don't want to hurt no, that No, also feelings. because anxious people are a little boundaryless. Let's just call the thing the thing, you know, like you're a <laughs> little boundaryless you. sometimes. I love the, you, Annie. The thing is, anxious people have bad behavior, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when you don't ask for what you need. <laughs> Every anxious person that's listening to this podcast is going to be like, fuck these bitches. <laughs> and I, we're done with this today. <laughs> I mean, the, the problem is, she the problem is, said. I am an anxious person, right? So I know. I know how I have behaved when I, you know, and we do these things, right? Yeah. And we're so good at justifying them, right? Mm. Like, I only did that because I was so hurt. I only did that because, look, fine, whatever. Your big feelings are fine. Your bad behavior is not, you know? So if an avoidant has the presence of mind to say, I need three hours to myself, don't retaliate. Give them Mm -hmm. what they need because the second, and I can say this from my avoidant experience, the second that person checks in with me before that mark, I'm like, fuck, now I need another five hours. Uh huh. (laughs) You know, wait a second. I I, I want to jump in here though because, and I, and I, you know, in all kind of being self aware and all my self awareness, we did have a, a session with you last week or whatever that was. And as the avoidant in my current dynamic, I have to also own, you know, you kind of called me out on something which was valid. And it was like, I had to be more aware of my language. Right. And it, mm. it is a two party system here. Right. Like he has to kind of own his own shit and I have to own my own shit. And one of the things you said was, you know, my tendency because I, for whatever reason, I feel bad saying things the way, you know, asking for what I need, all of the things that I actually know a lot of avoidance kind of struggle with. It comes out in a way that's actually kind of mean, right? Like it comes Mm -hmm. out. I have a tendency to say things like, I just want to be left alone. Just leave me alone. Right. And I usually will say that when I've gotten to the point where my nervous system is already overwhelmed and that's Mm -hmm. like the circuit breaker going off. Right. And so now let's let's be compassionate for a second and put ourselves in any other person's shoes on the receiving right. end of the person you love saying to you, I just want to be left alone. That doesn't feel very good, right? And I don't care if you're anxious yeah. or avoidant. The bottom line is that just doesn't feel good to hear, right? And so right. is there a way that I can get more in right relationship with my language and also where I'm at energetically so that when I'm at a five, yeah. I can say to somebody, I, I just am really desiring alone time or to be alone for a while versus waiting until I'm at a 10 where I'm like, just fucking leave me alone. Right. And that, that is my work that I, it, listen, that's my forever work. I'm always trying to find a way to express yeah, it. At a five, it's but. so hard too. like, for me, this was like a huge gap, right. In my relationship with Heidi was like, um, and this is the, this is the place where avoidance also get caught. It's like, oh, I told you the thing that you wanted to hear, but then you didn't, you know, you didn't take it. Right. Like, so, mm-hmm. For me, that looks like I would say to Heidi, like, everything's okay. I just need a little space. Like, I promise that we're, you know, going to come back together, whatever, whatever, you know, I'm probably making a little more flowery for the purposes Mm -hmm. of this podcast than it might be in real life. Right. But, 
you know, and then I, or she would ask me for the reassurance and I would give her the reassurance and it wouldn't feel satisfactory to her. Right. And so I remember at one point saying to her, like, my reassurance is only as good as your ability to receive it. Right. And then like, as I was saying it to her and later I had a conversation with CJ as he was like, yeah, how's that slap for you? Right. Like, and I was like, "Mm, so hard, (laughs) like, cause Mm. I'm the anxious one in that relationship. And he would give me the same kind of assurances and I would be like, I mean, maybe, (laughs) you know? And Mm. so I think it's hard. We have like, and this is why it's that classic loop that we have so much trouble breaking out of. Um, and, and simultaneously in trying to break that cycle, we're trying to move out of codependency into interdependence, right? And so these are very tough moves to be making, especially all at once, especially mm-hmm. when we're talking about adding relationships, especially when we're so triggered all the time. So mm-hmm. I think that people don't necessarily realize the depth. Like, you know, I think it took me Okay. I have been with my therapist for like 16 years. I think I started doing attachment work like, like year 13. (laughs) I was like, I remember coming into therapy being like, I'm here for this experience and I want to heal, but I'm not talking about my childhood. Okay. Don't bring it up. I think what's tough for me is like, and this is something I've been so fascinated by. Like, I think we have a different ability to self-soothe in our platonic relationships for whatever reason than we do in our romantic relationships. Like if Vanessa said to me, if I was over there wanting to spend time and she was like, I just want to be alone. I would not think that had anything to do with me as a human. I would think Vanessa's in a mood, right? And I would Mm -hmm. go home and I would say, I'll see you later. But if it's my partner, there is a level of activation that again, it's like, I don't have to like, like, I guess my. I'm like, why is that me? It, that's like, because this is know. because of the centralization of romance. This is because of the yes. the, the power that romance has in, in your life, right? And the one thing I can say about that, right, is living – I live with my mom. And there have been times when Heidi and I have really gotten into it, right? We're, we're fully – we're in the loop. We're doing it. And my mom's like, I don't get it. <laughs> Why can't you just put it down? Like, why can't you, you know what I mean? Like exactly what you're saying, right? Like, what are you doing? And it's like, it's just as activating, right? Like my relationships are on this plane. So whether it's her or whether it's CJ, I'm like, yeah, I'm going going all in on this, you know? Um, And I'm going all the way there because they both have that kind of, now I'm not saying that I'm not recommending people go all in on any, on any of that. Right. And that's Mm. part of. Like when we talk about like, what's your work to do? My work is removing urgency from conflict as part of that security seeking, right? Um, being because like, a- can it wait? Because it's a drug. And that's like yeah. the thing that yeah. has been the greatest realization of my life. And we talked about this last time, coming from the addiction world, there is a way that we self-regulate through people. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's acceptable societally when it's a romantic relationship. And this is like, whatever the framework of the relationship is, it's like, we get to not take responsibility for really being in like, and I think 
you said this about, um, and I love the way you structured it with like, if I give myself an hour, they literally use the same language when people are in recovery, getting through addictions. Like if Mm. I just make it to the end of this hour and what I teach myself is to self-soothe, but also it becomes like a superpower because I know how to stay with myself. And so I think that's why I have such a visceral reaction when people say it often on social media, like the avoidant holds all the power. And I'm like, the person who is anxious in that moment believes that they don't hold power, Mm -hmm. but the power is always for you to come back to yourself. I think what you said, what you said just like gave me this aha moment because you were like, because we're self-regulating with other people, right? We shouldn't be (laughs) self-soothing. Okay. We're self-soothing with other people. We shouldn't be self-soothing with other people. We should be co-soothing with other people or co-regulating with other people at appropriate times, right? in a unified, collaborative way. Like I'm a big fan of co-regulation. What I'm not a fan of is codependent regulation, right? So I think that's like also part of the difference is like we're we're using people in these ways, not because we're bad people, but because we're we're trying to meet our own needs. And, you know, that's the, that's kind of the sidestepping of it is it's like that avoidant person is, is sensing that thing and running away. Right. And and we both have to come center. Right. Because, because neither should be left alone, mm-hmm. essentially, emotionally. Um, but it's about collaboration and how we get there together. But I think, and this is often my challenge with the conversations around co-regulation, is I find it has been so unbelievably permission-giving to people Mm. to get, and and let's take the shame out of it. Let's just talk about, like, if this person is not there for you to co-regulate with, then what? Like, I believe absolutely it can be a tool, but so can your therapist, and so can a walk outside, and so can your friend, a hot shower, like all kinds of tools in your toolkit, other than if I don't have this person, I'm going to lose my mind, which Mm -hmm. a lot of people sort of take co-regulation and run with it that way. And I think it's important, like I live separately from my partners who live together. Um, And so oftentimes people aren't available to co-regulate with me, right? Um, But when they are, we have very specific consent language around almost anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's, hey, it's so nice to see you. Oh, can I give you a hug? You know, mm, um, can I can I lay down with you? Are you open to me touching you? I mean, at, at one point, um, CJ had said something to me about like, I don't think I could like be with anyone else or somebody. I think he actually said somebody my age because I don't think that they would be able to respect the fact that there are a lot of times when I don't want to be touched. And I was like, I was like, but to me, he's very emotionally available and gives a lot of touch. So the times when he says he doesn't want it, I want to respect that, you know, like I want to respect that even if it's nine times out of every 10, um, because then I know it's really welcome and I have to actually give him a lot of credit because he introduced me to a lot of consent language that I have felt very helpful in my Mm. relationships and also in parenting. You know, Mm -hmm. can I give you a hug? Can I hold your hand? You know, how are you feeling? Kind of stuff. Oh, I just feel it in my like, in my nervous system, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know Danae, by seeing your face, it's like, I, I again, like the, the villainization, I suppose, of the avoidant, it's like what we don't understand or what we don't see or what we personalize that is not personal 
is the way in which not all, but a lot of people who tend to swing more avoidant were overwhelmed as a child mm. by a caregiver's needs. And whether that was intentional or not is not the conversation, right? But it was very overwhelming for a child to not be able to have the autonomous self, the language, the the permission to have boundaries and say, I don't feel like being touched right now. I don't feel like hearing your emotional story right now. I don't want to be on the receiving end of your really big emotional explosion right now, whatever the thing is, right? We can go on and on with the examples. And so when you're in a dynamic with somebody who in some deep level activates that same feeling for you that your parent did, it makes sense that you are going to shut down and kind of run away in a sense from that person, right? And again, of course, there's, there are, you know, there's work and action to be had on both sides of this equation. Um, but I think what you're speaking to so beautifully, this idea of consent language, when I first heard you say that, I have never, and it seems so simple, but it, I have never felt such a deep like sigh in my body when you okay. said, are you open to me giving you a hug right now? I was like, oh my God. First of all, I've never heard those words ever. I don't think in my entire life where any person in any relationship mm-hmm. I've ever been in, right? But also like even just giving me a window into that's a question that I'm allowed to answer. Yeah. Like oh, I'm yeah. allowed to say no to that. And and here's what, for the anxious person that's attempting to learn some of this and implement some of the consent language, you've got to give that other person the ability to say no without retaliation because otherwise it's just defeating the entire purpose. It's not consent if you don't feel empowered to say no. It's just not, right? And this goes for anything. This goes for a hug or sex or whatever it is, right? Like you want your partners to be enthusiastically consenting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think for me, like part of that too is like, When CJ asks me if he can hold my hand or kiss me or touch me, it also allows me to evaluate without it having thrust upon me, right? Like I'm a very touch-oriented person. It is a huge love language of mine. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes I've actually found that when he's asked me, the answer is no, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I have, like, it allows me to check in because just like you, Vanessa, I didn't have somebody until I was well into my 30s ask me these questions. And Mm -hmm. so now when he asks or when Heidi asks, can I give you a hug? Is there something I can do? You know, we have a lot of of these phrases in our cache, Um, you know, say more, how are you feeling? How can I support you? Can I give you a hug? You know, that we just, they're, they're on autopilot for us because it's how we relate with one another because we also assume as neurodivergent uh, people that we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. We can't estimate necessarily by someone's facial expression or demeanor or even body language how they are feeling in that moment. And I think approaching with that amount of curiosity to one another gives us a pretty accurate view of where everybody's at. I just legitimately, like, as you were describing it, I'm so struck by like the emotionality that it brought up. And I think what you're saying is so important relationally, like for us to just expand this in terms of this being a normal way to relate to people, because it does, it's like, 
I think what's often misunderstood is like, I am someone who like, really like, I do think like physical touch is my love language Same. and I long to connect with people. And yeah. exactly as you were speaking to, there's a way that there's just like such a presence and allowing that other person to be the autonomous other that I respect. Mm -hmm. Um, that just feels like valuing that person. Yes. Yeah. Like it just feels so good even as you describe it. I think mm -hmm. for people like, you know, I'm in my late thirties. We didn't get that education, right? We didn't mm -hmm. get that opportunity. Um, and I think for most of us of the millennial, even Gen X, you know, even the zillennials who are kind of on that cusp, um, we basically saw monogamy, right? Like that was what we saw. That was what you know, we were raised on rom-coms and all of that kind of thing. And I think as a result, we defaulted into relationships, which were monogamous, which came with a set of expectations. When we talk about the relationship escalator, right? We, we, we ascended, we did all mm -hmm. the things, right? Mm -hmm. And it skips. That's why we haven't had those things, right? Because we haven't asked each other questions like what happens if we stop having sex or how would we like to have an argument? Do we have a values document that we've done together? And do we, do we know if we match up on these things? You know, mm. how do you want to talk about sex? How do you want to be approached about these things? And that's what I encourage people no matter what their relationship style is, um, to get to know their partner in, in these very curious, um, ways, because, you know, even recently CJ and I were, were kind of going through our paces of like, you know, remembering that we don't know everything about each other. Mm -hmm. Right. And I had said to him, like, yeah, like, you know me well, but you don't know everything about me. And you certainly don't know about the things that have recently changed because I change mm -hmm. every day. So how yeah. would you possibly know if we haven't had a discussion about this, you know, mm -hmm. and we have to remember that about one another, that on any given day, we could be a little bit different and you can't assume. Mm. Okay. Before we let you go, cause we're running out of time <laughs> with this glorious woman. There is I one know. term. Can we just keep her? I know. I like everyone wants to be in a relationship with Annie. Oh, <laughs> I love that. There is one term that we have to cover because we said okay. we were, we, it was important for us to cover and, yes. and it's a topic that's out there. And I don't know if this is going to feel like a sharp right term, but I just want to make sure we throw the word compersion out there into the oh, conversation yeah. oh, before we go. I love to talk about this. <laughs> I okay, love to talk about okay. What is it? Why are we all talking about it? Give us <laughs> oh, the breakdown. So, okay. Compersion is a word that means like feeling joy for your partner's joy with you know, presumably like with another partner. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really thrown around as this enlightened term in polyamory, like, oh, I'm so compersive. And it's like, good for you, Sally, but I think it's bullshit. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is kind of my take on it. I, I think that compersion is a complex um, emotion that we feel. And mm -hmm. I don't think that it's a What's the right word? I don't think that it's all that important. I don't think that it's mm -hmm. like this, you, if you don't experience compersion, you're not doing this right. Right. Like mm -hmm. 
Um, I experienced compersion very few times in polyamory. More likely, I was having a little bit of jealousy. And there were a couple of times when I had full adrenaline reactions to people. Mm -hmm. um, and those were actually very scary because once you've had a, an adrenaline reaction to your partner being with someone else, the bigger fear is that you're going to just continue to have them, right? Um, and so I absolutely do not ever recommend that people aim for compersion. I absolutely recommend that they aim for neutrality. And neutrality is a wonderful feeling. It means mm -hmm. that you are not activated. And I think that that is more important than attaining enlightenment, you know, or um, something that you can hold up as, as a badge to say, mm -hmm. like, see how good I'm doing in polyamory compersive <laughs> you know like <laughs> no there's no compersion police they're not like running around going are oh, you feeling compersive if not i'm taking back that polyamory uh, ticket mm -hmm. you've got there like nobody actually cares what your partner actually cares about um is that you're not pissed off when they get home that's one thing mm -hmm. that you're not you know throwing around uh, now we need new agreements because i feel jealous or you know acting of your emotions in some bad way right mm. um that you can say i'm glad you had a good time that's wonderful um but maybe let's table this and just be together or i actually mm -hmm. felt really neutral today would be a great mm. thing to hear right um and there are lots of people who are like well i am compersive and i want to like shout about it and that's great mm. like i think it's great that you feel compersive that's wonderful um but most of us are are struggling. <laughs> so but don't you also think that compersion isn't like a, it doesn't necessarily also need to be a fixed state because I think that you sure. can like I think that you can kind of weave in and out of it. Like I think there are moments of feeling compersive for that experience, and then I think that there are maybe you know maybe there's components of the experience or there are elements of that that is what maybe brings up the jealousy, but that doesn't necessarily override the feelings of compersion that you have for your partner to have yeah. this experience. Yeah. And then mean, there's other components that also piss you off and activate you. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I think that's what makes it like this, this kind of complex experience, right? Mm -hmm. Is like, you know, again, we'll talk about Carl Jung's paradox, right? Like we're holding mm -hmm. these two things in our hand and then there it is. Like we're right there mm -hmm. on it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that there's lots of moments like that. Like certainly mm -hmm. I even have those moments where I'm like, God, I'm so glad that Heidi and CJ live together so they can support each other in this way. And I'm like a little sad for myself right now because like I'm yeah. alone, they're together and I'm like eating this waffle, you know? Like, <laughs> so I think that like there's no either or kind yes. of scenario. Um, but I think that also people are people have this like notion of it being a pendulum. Like I'm either yes. this or I'm that. And I just don't think the human experience is that black and white. Mm -hmm. And I also think that on some days you feel great and on some days you feel shit. You know, I always use this. It's like, I also have bad days in monogamy, right? <laughs> like we have bad days in polyamory. We have bad days in monogamy. We have bad days when we're single. We have bad days when we're coupled. Like no experience is going to be like 100% roses, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that there's just this, um, there's this like added pressure in the polyamorous community to package it in a way that looks perfect. Um, mm -hmm that everybody has to be a spokesperson, that everybody has to be like saying like, look what I'm doing and I'm doing it so well and it's better than this because of that, right? Yep. And I find that it just really undermines the struggle that we're going through as 
any type of relational style, right? Like if monog- I mean, mm-hmm. monogamous people do this too, right? Like just open Facebook or just open Instagram and look at Sheila's pictures with her husband. Like he's cheating on her. We all know it, but they look happy in this picture in their bathing suits, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, everybody does this, but yeah. I want to like encourage people not to feel like they have to be performative. And that's my Mm. concern with compersion is that it becomes this performative sign of right doing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I feel like that's true of so many ways that we are attempting to hold a North Star of Mm. who we're attempting to be that people sort of feel like if I can't do it perfectly, I might as well not even try. It's like, well, it's just not that easy. So like, Mm -hmm. and of course, like none of this is easy every day, all day for any of us, whatever the thing is that we hold is the larger truth that I believe in. But that doesn't mean that I don't want to continue to strive to get there. Yeah. I mean, I am like, I am a self-help kind of gal, you know, like (laughs) I will, I will read any self-help book and I'll, I'll watch a documentary and be like, I'm vegan this week. You know, like I'll do all the, I love to kind of like try and strive and do those Mm -hmm. things. But I also really want to be enfranchised in being messy and making mistakes and doing those things because, you know, that's how we grow. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, no one's ever like, Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm at my very best. Like when you're at your very best, you're not, you're not in that growth kind of space. It's in the muck and the mire that we're really growing. And so I feel like people forget that. Like there's a value to all of it. Like I, I used Mm -hmm. to say, God, I had my heart smashed so many times when I was polyamorous, like just like crying like snap running down your you know like the whole the whole nine and I remember like people being like well how are you feeling I'll be like I'm alive you know and there's like a value even in that it's like all of those things like they Mm -hmm. they are signals to us man you are living you are doing it and and I think we can't skip that it's important I just want to keep you. I feel like <laughs> maybe not immediately, but we definitely, you're going to be one of those guests that we're going to have to like come back, have you come back and give your two cents on Why do all like kinds it here? of issues. Yeah. <laughs> um, but thank you, Annie. I just, I think you are so brilliant and I love the way that you are opening conversations in such a, I don't know. There's so much grounding in the way that you speak to things, I mm-hmm. think, because you've really like done so much thinking and done so much exploring that it just is really permission giving for like, there's just not a like, like one way, you know, one truth that we can hold is like this needs to be. Yeah. I mean, I it'd, be, the future. it'd be great if we could, but <laughs> right? <laughs> we tried that. Be simple. We all tried all the time. Yeah. But thank you so much for facilitating these amazing conversations because without a place to have them, they don't go very far. That's true. Well, we appreciate you, Annie. And for sure, anybody listening can expect to to get a taste of you more on our podcast in the future, I'm sure. Okay. And follow Annie's Instagram because she has so many brilliant nuggets every day. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. We'll tag you in the show notes too so everybody can just click out. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.